Welcome to NYSA Presents Podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Laser. Today, my guest is Charles Bernard, co-author of the book Frank in the Third Dimension. Jim Woodring uh, was the creator of Frank, and Charles is the artist that gave Frank his third dimension. I will also be joined today by Joe Pedotto, graphic artist and creator of the NYSA series, the Anaglyph Jukebox. I'll begin with uh, you, Charles, today. What, what is your background? Uh, my background is, uh, like like many people, very diverse. But uh, my my normal background, if I were to say it and throw it out there, career-wise, has been uh, in the video game industry as an art director for the last 20 or so years. When did you discover 3D? Well, like many people, I discovered 3D when I was a child with the Viewmaster toy. But to be honest, I wasn't really even aware the images in the Viewmaster were 3D. It wasn't until I was about 12 or 13 uh, that I was visiting my grandmother's house and she had a red button uh, realist viewer and about 500 slides of our family. <clears throat> so it was there that I actually saw photographs of my parents when they were dating in, you know, gorgeous Kodachrome stereo. And that, that was pretty much it. I, it, it and I, I have them in my possession now. It's amazing. Did you have a favorite uh, set of Viewmaster reels that you that you recall at all? Yeah, I well, I I've always been in, in, very fond of cartoons and cartoon subjects, so naturally I had a lot of the clay art uh, stuff that uh, was coming out from Viewmaster. Those were those were very attractive to me. Flintstones, uh, even some of the earlier Bugs Bunny stuff, but also the uh, the line drawn or the the, the the stereo drawings that uh, they became very good at doing in some of the later years when they didn't want to invest in clay art. I think it was in the mid to late seventies, they started doing actual uh, line art and that intrigued me because I was, I was doing a lot of drawing as a child and I was trying to figure out how it was done. Did you at any point come across any 3d comic books? I didn't discover 3d comic books until I was in my mid teens and it was almost by accident. Um, and for me, mid-teens means about 1975. And, uh, you know, we still didn't have the push of the new wave of 3D comics with Ray Zone and the like. We were still kind of in this weird, uh, you know, <laughs> land of the unknown as far as whether 3D comics even existed. So my, my first exposure was in a large book called Stereo Views that was advertised in the back of Starlog magazine. And I bought it on a whim. And in that book was one page devoted to uh, the EC3D horror comic. And that was what really blew me away. Plus, I my interest in cartoon animation at that point was extensive. So I was very, very familiar with and recognized that this, this was obviously layers of acetate that had been inked and opaqued and then uh, offset to create the 3D effect. Do you know who took those those stereo realist pictures in your family? Who's the one with the camera? Yeah, I do. Um, <clears throat> so the pictures were actually taken by my Aunt Lula, who I only met once in my life, unfortunately. Uh, she acquired her stereo, stereo realist when it just came out, I think in 1949, and proceeded to shoot all family gatherings, as well as it looked like she might have taken some classes because some of her... Her, she was doing still lifes and landscapes and all kinds of beautiful stuff. And she continued shooting well into the late 60s with it. Um, unfortunately, she, she passed away when I was very young. I only, I only have a vague recollection of her 
as this very vibrant sort of tall redheaded woman. Uh, and I, I wish it's my one regret. If she's one family member, I would have loved to have known because she obviously had a love for 3d. And she left what a wonderful legacy. Oh yeah. And, and, you know, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, as a child, my, one of my fantasies was I always wanted to see what my parents looked like when they got married. The reason is they had a drunk wedding photographer who, who did a terrible job shooting their wedding. And among the set is about 60 slides of the wedding and my parents at the altar and the whole thing, uh, including the reception afterwards. And having that so beautifully preserved, uh, it, it was just, you know, it just knocked me out. It, it still knocks me out because it's like kind of like being there, as you know. That's it. What a blessing that is. And not only that, she stopped and reloaded several times on top of it. Exactly. And that, and I've even commented to people, it's like, okay, you know, you got, you got the wedding, you got a drunk wedding photographer, but you ended up having an aunt who shows up with a stereo realist and shoots everything beautifully, you know. And stay straight enough to reload that thing, which is not easy to do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I love her already. I, you know, just, <laughs> incredible. Charles, you mentioned that you were getting very into cartoon animation. And I wanted to ask if you've ever had the opportunity to see any of the 3D cartoons that were produced by the major studios in that 52, 53, 54 time period. There was a Popeye cartoon, a, a Casper cartoon, a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Have you seen any of those? I, I've only been able to view them thanks to the 3D Film Archive, honestly. Um, they've been including them, as you may know. Uh, in a lot of their recent releases. Um, I knew about them because books would mention them. Uh, a great book that you both might be familiar with is uh, Amazing 3D. It came out in the early 80s. And they, they touched on that. They touched on those cartoons. And so I knew they existed, but I had no way to view them. They were not... I live in a small town in Northern California, so it's not like I'm I'm near a major metropolis where it might make the rounds in a theater or something. So... Um, I was really out of touch, a, a little bit desperate, but, um, you know, as time went by uh, and, you know, thank God for the 3D film archive, because it's like amazing what we what we're getting out of them and the fact they're digging this stuff up and then restoring it so beautifully. It's, it's a fantastic project and everyone in the 3D community should should support it. I, I agree 100 percent. I tell people often, listen, even if you don't have a 3D TV, just buy the coasters. You use them as beer coasters, but but support them. Just buy the damn things. Uh, you could make the argument that they are saving some important cultural you know, documents. Um, and the further away from the time period they were created, the more important they become. And I'm pretty excited. I mean, I'm, I've become recently very involved with them in uh, producing their... Uh, converting and creating some of their 3D menus for their their releases. So um, they're a great group of guys to work with as well. So it's just, uh, it's love all around. What was your first 3D conversion, whether it was a paid job or just something you did on your own? My first 3D conversion was um, a panel from a Daredevil comic book that was reproduced and Marvel used to have a Friends of Old Marvel magazine called Foom, <laughs> and uh, in issue 13, I believe it was, they had reproduced a, a pretty high-resolution black-and-white image of Daredevil. And I realized, I was, I, was, I was just starting to become aware, and I'd just seen, you know, 
the EC3D image. And I thought, I bet if, uh, if I could make a copy of this, I could cut out the pieces and start experimenting with my own stereo pairs. So that was my very first one. And, and what software were you using at that time? <laughs> well, in 1975, it was, or 77, it would have been uh, an exacto an exacto knife and a stat camera, which I was fortunate enough to have access to because of my dad's business. So this is, this is pre-digital 3D. Very pre-digital. And to my knowledge, it's pre-Rayzone, which is ultimately the method he was using. Um, it was very painful. What was your ultimate result? Did you, did, you get a, did you get a decent result? I got a decent result. And I, and I kind of stuck to what I thought was the gospel, that it had to be you know, only four or five planes, which, of course, is not necessarily true. But uh, honestly, just doing four or five planes out of a panel with an X-Acto knife around Daredevil's body, and I think Black Widow was in the panel as well, it was, uh, it was enough to get the effect across and actually see it work. What led you to take on the, uh, the project? Um, I'd always been a fan of Jim's work. I, I, um, I first encountered Jim Woodring's work in the early 2000s. I had been collecting a lot of his comics and books. And I had recently just started doing the conversions for uh, Gone Mad in Stereo World with Aaron Warner. And I don't know, I, I don't call it hubris, whatever. I thought, you know what? I've always loved Jim's work. I thought it would convert really well. Uh, and so I reached out to him an email. And, you know, I'm sure this must have been a wacky thing to get out of the blue. Um, I just said, hey, you know, love your work. And would you mind if I convert one of your images to 3D and send it to you? And he said, yeah, he literally one email. Sure. You know, so, <laughs> and I, I, I did it. And I uh, thought I did a pretty good job and gave him a red and blue anaglyph, sent it in the next email about a month later. And I knew something was up because as soon as he received it, he said, looks great. <laughs> 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 so I was like, okay, cool. Um, and then it occurred to me, maybe he didn't have 3D glasses. So I, I asked, I said, do you, do you have 3D, you know, red and cyan 3D glasses? And he said, not on me. And I said, okay. So I, I, he gave me his mailing address and I sent it to him. About two weeks later, he emailed me a, a huge email and said, this is blowing my mind and I can't believe you pulled this off. And uh, do you want to collaborate on something? And that's, and that's how Frank in the Third Dimension was born. That's an amazing journey. Um, just for people who may not be aware of the level of uh, depth and uh, complexity of Frank in the, in the Third Dimension, I have read that there are, at a maximum, between 300 and 400 layers, quite some distance from the X-Acto knife. Yes, yes. And that, and that is obviously where we step into modern-day technology to make that possible. Uh, so Photoshop, Photoshop is the tool of my trade for that. Um, there are a few other things, though, that have to occur, um, and, and this was something I worked hard to try to, um, I, I wouldn't say perfect necessarily, but at least accomplish, was I really wanted to, to figure out a way to give rounded objects actual volume, not to just feel like flat cutouts or lots of layers that were stacked to create a rounding effect, but actually do some distortions to uh give the illusion that those items actually had volume and fullness. So I spent quite a bit of time on that. Um, that was something that 
uh, I was pretty confident I could do when I approached Jim. <clears throat> I wasn't prepared for the fact of how much work it would be, but it was a, it was a good ride. Now in the book, it says you use between 200 and 400 layers to, to produce the, the 3D. How and why did you require so many? Well, because I basically separate any object that's in front of another object, it's on its own layer. That includes every blade of grass. Um, you, you need the ability to actually shift things and be able to shift the layers to, to create the parallax. But along with that is I'm using like the displace filter in Photoshop, which actually lets you shift the pixels in a layer to give it the roundness. So there's, it, it's, it's, it's easier to describe in the, in, you know, <laughs> in the back of a book that, yeah, I use two to 400 layers. It really was two to 400 layers. And then many of them are hand distorted and manipulated to create the sense of volume. The AV club uh, review, Frank in the third dimension is a stunning achievement in 3d comics. They use this term volumetric 3d. And I think that um, anyone who has only experienced the kind of, um, cardboard cutout silhouette effect uh, that you usually see in anaglyph comics, this is something which is wholly other. That really warms my cockles because frankly, um, when, you're, when you're buried in it and you're doing it, and it is a, it is a, a lot of work. That's, that step of doing the volumetric is a lot of experimentation, a lot of, okay, I've gone too far. Oh, it's not quite enough. Um, a lot of hard copy prints. I bought an inkjet printer just to try to get it so I could match the, the, the colors. There's a lot of steps and you hope that people are going to appreciate it. And Joe, you were one of the first reviews on Amazon that just went crazy and told everybody to buy the book. Um, so it's, it was very reassuring to realize, okay, this work wasn't in vain. This extra effort uh, is noticed. When you went into that, did you have a, a process in your head that you followed or did you just kind of do it a little along the way as you learned what you needed to do? I knew basically the process I was going to follow. What, uh, as far as I knew what I needed to do in Photoshop to accomplish the end result, I think what I lacked at that time was I, at that point, as I said, I had only been doing the Gone Mad cartoon in Stereo World for about two or three months when I took this on. And even though I knew what needed to be done, I still did not have a very efficient process in Photoshop. So it was very slow going. Over the years, I've developed scripts and my own shortcuts and all kinds of things that literally make Photoshop specifically do those tasks. So I don't have to, for example, go to the displace filter anymore and enter custom settings. Um, I've written a script that actually gives me a pared down displace filter that only shifts left and right, for example. So things like that uh, definitely improved my workflow and allowed me to, to generate material faster. It's still a slow process. I won't, I won't say it's fast, but um, compared to the torture I was sort of putting myself through uh, when I did, did the Frank book, I, I've come quite a ways. Which one of the images gave you the most difficulty? Do you recall? Yes, um, I, I, I know the, I know the, uh, I can describe the plate to you. It's probably the one with the most characters in it. And it's literally a giant shot of, uh, of Frank's off in the distance. And there's, there's chickens and monsters and stuff going all the way out 
in basically to infinity. And that particular plate was very time consuming just because the more elements you have, the more time it takes. It's really that simple. The more detail there is, the more work there is. Now, Charles, you've also done um, 3D conversion work for the uh, Alan Moore, Kevin O'Neill League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series. I did that with another conversionist by the name of Christian LeBlanc. He and I had started conversing about 2015. And I guess one could say he's a competitor, but it ended up becoming more of a friendship because we found that, you know, the work is extensive enough that it was actually nice to know there was a partner out there that I could kind of, you know, if we had a big job that uh, I could turn to and say, hey, you know, you want to help out with this? And then it's just a matter of kind of talk, you know, talking the editor into hiring two people instead of one, which is obviously not necessarily an easy thing to do. <laughs> But um, we were ver- we were fairly successful, and he was actually contacted through some contacts he had at IDW. They contacted him for that project, and he reached out to me. That was a very fascinating project. Could you talk a little bit about the difference between black and white line art conversion, as you've done in Frank in the Third Dimension, and what I guess we would we would call full color anaglyph for League of Ordinary of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Yes. Um, so yeah, I think I think Ray referred to, Ray Zone referred to it. Uh, he may have coined his own word here. It's it's, it's polychromatic anaglyph. <laughs> um, so the the biggest difference um, the, the biggest difference for me, and it's not a huge difference, really, is just the uh, the effect in Photoshop. Now, one of the things that uh, and what I mean by that is the working file itself. It is easier to separate a black and white file. It is easier to separate just black and white line work. You don't have to deal with uh, colors that might be competing with your selection process. It's just black and white. With color work, um, it can get more complicated because the colorist can get creative and decide, well, I'm going to color outside the lines, but it's still part of the figure. Um, I'm just going to finish out the hair with, with a sweep of color as opposed to line work. So it's making sure you're gathering everything up that needs to be on the appropriate layer. And it is a little bit more complicated. What format you get the art in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen project? The format is what a typical color, uh, comic colorist would receive, which is a very high resolution layered Photoshop file. They basically asked us, what do you guys need when we started that project? You know, we can give you a, a big TIFF. We can give you whatever, whatever file format you need. But since we were both working in Photoshop already, I also wanted it in a layered format because what happens with the layered format in comic books, the line work is on one layer. The colors are usually on another layer. They may have additional layers for special effects. Lettering is often on another layer. We wanted that information as much as possible because it's just one less thing we have to separate out of the image. Like if the lettering's all on one image, we don't have to try to figure out how to remove that. Layered Photoshop files are sort of the, the go-to. How much input did you have in terms of the printing and the colors that were required for the book? That's the part that kind of haunts both Christian and I. (laughs) (laughs) Any, I don't, I don't know how much experience you may have had with printing anaglyph, but um, it, it, under the best of circumstances, um, it can be hair raising and under the worst (laughs) of circumstances, it can be a, a punch to the stomach. We really did struggle with that, mainly because 
you know, we're hired as contractors to do a job, and that is to convert it into 3D. We were encouraged, and they were very open to our suggestions as far as printing. But the biggest setback for us on that book was the creators of the book really wanted it in red and green anaglyph. They wanted it in green, not cyan, green. And the reason being is uh, both of the creators, Alan Moore being the one who was, I think, the primary driver in this, I could be mistaken, but their sense was 3D, the, the 3D they remembered was red and green. And that's what we had to work to. We really tried to politely push back on that because we knew that with green, you absorb so many colors and so much is lost in the way of color rendition. There's also a tendency for green filters to be very dark. And we were very concerned about light throughput. We were very concerned about how much color we would see because you do get quite a bit more of the spectrum through a cyan lens. They absolutely would not budge on that. So that set us into a real experimentation process. Uh, Christian actually did the majority of this because he had the most experience with uh, balancing for color printing. And he really struggled with trying to find a happy medium. And all of this, of course, is working towards the moving target that it's going to get printed in China and we don't have any way to test what we think is going to work construction of the book that did you know it was going to be such like a the way it was designed almost like a hardcover from beginning to end yes we knew we knew that because uh about 10 years previously they had done something very similar also with league of extraordinary gentlemen but in that version they had uh, ray zone doing the conversions the uh the black dossier explain the black dossier there joe in this uh ongoing series i mean i guess it's about 20 years uh, uh, Alan Moore and Kevin Neal have been doing this. People probably know uh, it was a mediocre movie starring Sean Connery called League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but it doesn't in any way touch on the uh, complexity of this magnificent story. But the basic idea is he's taking characters that are in the public domain um, and creating creating new, new stories about them. It's a, it's a, a, a wonderful series, and Alan Moore is probably one of the uh, you know, greatest uh, authors in the in, in the in the history of the field. It's it's interesting to me in 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 one sense because um, I know from my research in the fifties comic books um, there were both approaches: red and blue, and and uh, red red and green uh, uh, were were done. Um, I'm wondering if red and red and green were the only ones that made it over to England. For, uh, Alan, for Alan Moore and Kevin to experience when they were kids? That was a consideration that Christian and I had. They were dead set on that, that color combination. Um, so, you know, we work, we work with, you know, within whatever requirements uh, had to be made. There were, there were a couple of other interesting requirements in that they were actually very, very fond of that cardboard cutout look. By the time they've approached Christian and I, we've been you know, striving for more of that volumetric look. So there was a test period where um, I just wanted to make sure we were hitting their expectation level. I did a variety of passes on a page, just a section of a page, showing uh, varying levels of uh, flat cardboard cutout and volumetric. And then I did another one, I think, with cardboard cutout with a lot of layers. 
So we did that before we even took on the job. It was really important to us to make sure we were hitting their expectation level, because honestly, I think they didn't think it was going to be possible. So, you know, they, they viewed Ray as kind of like the, the last bastion of this, of this type of art. And uh, we appreciated that. Wanted to make sure that we were going to be able to achieve the expected quality, uh, not only of what Ray produced, but also, you know, we just wanted to hit it. We didn't want to miss that sort of satisfactory level. As it turned out, they, they, we kind of did a, a hybrid. It was mostly flat cutout. And part of that was due to the fact there was so much complexity in the artwork and we knew it was going to be reproduced small. We didn't want to take up a lot of space with puffiness and things like that. We wanted to make sure there was separation. So most of it's cardboard cutout with a few obvious things rounded slightly. And, and I guess um, for people who are not familiar with this material, we should we should perhaps mention that um, the use of these 3D segments is integrally tied into the story. There's a place called the Blazing World, and I, I think all all appearances in the Blazing World are in 3D. Am I correct in that? Yes, the Blazing World is always depicted in 3D, and even transitions from uh, 2D to 3D when they move into the Blazing World we had to create that as well. There's a few pages where they're a largely a 2D page, but there might even be a Blazing World element on one panel or two. Blazing World, explain what that is. This is actually almost an alternate dimension that the book goes into and has existed. Um, I, I, I think they might have introduced it in Black Dossier. And uh, it, it is essentially almost like another alternate uh, Salvador Dali-esque dimension uh, where uh, again, there's a there's a lot of tie-ins with some literary events, but um, the the thinking on the part of Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill was that the Blazing World would be in, always in 3D. It would be that special experience where the viewer had to put on the special glasses, and that was you know it was a good it was a good idea. It's novel. Most 3D conversions are start to finish, you take a comic story, maybe it might have been designed uh, to be uh, con converted to 3D, but um, it's 3D from, from, uh, from, start, from start to finish. This, uh, as you say, it's like, oh, we're entering the blazing world, let me get my glasses. <laughs> Correct. If you look at it, you'll even notice one of the other cues is Kevin O'Neill always made sure that people were putting, the characters themselves are wearing the same glasses, which is kind of another visual cue that you're, you're now entering the blazing world. This is how you see. The process of doing that was, uh, I think, actually not only ingenious, but it was actually a good move from a cost standpoint because it would have taken us a long time and it would have been very expensive for them to do the entire book in 3D. And to be quite honest with you, I'm not sure it would be as effective. Um, I still feel like it was a struggle to get that red and green to work well. Um, so I'm not sure I would even want to look at the whole book in red and green 3D. So <laughs> the fact that it's used as a special effect, uh, you know, as much as some people, you know, wince at the idea that 3D is being used as a gimmick, you know, sometimes that's uh, the best situation, in my opinion. I wouldn't want to task any living 3D conversion artist um, with doing uh, an, an entire book with the detail of Kevin O'Neill's art. I mean, he packs a lot in his panels. We weren't talking about uh, Franken in 3D at that point. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, an ongoing comic book series. Mm -hmm. Now I got it. 
technically, um, at least this is the way it was promoted. The one that we did, which was League of Extraordinary Gentlemen Tempest, Alan Moore claims is the last entry in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series. Comic books are famous for coming back like a phoenix from the flames. Any other projects on the horizon there? I'm doing some work right now with the 3D Film Archive. A lot of the work I do has been uh, primarily private. A lot of private artists reach out to me. Um, I'm working on a second poster with an artist named Mitch O'Connell. We worked on a poster called Starman a few years ago, which was a David Bowie poster in, in, in Anaglyph. It sold very well for him, so I'm doing a couple of additional prints with him. On some new uh, on some new images, and uh, you know the work the work sprinkles in. This isn't uh, this isn't a full time gig by any means. Uh, it's kind of more of a side hustle, but uh, it's it's in, it's enjoyable. And I'm getting it seems more and more notoriety for this. I'm getting more and more people interested in uh, in having their artwork or photographs uh, converted. People listening to this podcast who wanted to see examples of some of your work as a place. Is there a place on the web where they might go? www.3-dementia.com. And there's a gallery link there. You can see previous work that I've done. I believe the homepage takes you to some of the latest stuff I've, I've done, but I tend to be pretty bad at updating it. <laughs> when you're actually in the process, how long before you need to take a break? That's a that's a great realistic down to his question. Um, for me, the, the I'm I'm obsessive. So the problem with me is disciplining myself to stop. Um, I I was I I tend to get deeply immersed in in what I'm doing. I do the entire process, by the way, in anaglyph. I'm actually wearing anaglyph glasses and shifting the layers in real time and seeing the 3D effect as I work. So um, it's not a process that's, that's easy to interrupt, but you know, after each, if it's a large detailed piece, for example, we'll take the, uh, we'll take, we'll take the League, of, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen as an example. That was a pretty big project that spanned out over several months. And even though we only, Christian and I did it 18 pages total for the entire series, there was so much detail and there was so much back and forth with the editors, making sure we were, we were hitting what they wanted um, that, you know, for me, that was okay. You know, I could take a month or two off and, and not feel like I'm slacking too much. The question that remains in my mind is the, the difference between that uh, black and white conversion and the polychromatic anaglyphic conversion. So, as you described it, you're, you're receiving a layered Photoshop file where the colorist has already done his work. That's on separate layers. Did you have the freedom to adjust the colorist's work to aid your conversion work? What we ended up doing is, in the actual course of the conversion, um, we're primarily interested in just separating all of the pieces, you know, all of the different elements we want to shift to create the parallax. We're concentrating primarily on that. We're not paying attention to the color per se very much, other than to make sure if it needs to be included in a layer that it's there. The final stages or prep of the left and right views for printing is where we do all of the color adjustment. And that's where Christian would go in and adjust contrast. 
Um, he would go in in some cases and particularly with Kevin O'Neill stuff, he loved having things come out of the panels. And when they do that, they're extending into the white area of the page. Anything that goes out of a panel into the white area of a page is very challenging because it's a very high ghost risk. The contrast of a white page is so high that to, if that separation is not perfect or if the object has a lot of contrast, it's just, it's a ghost. You know, you, you can see you can see that phantom image in the other eye. It's unavoidable. So he actually got in very involved with finding ways to try to reduce contrast in spot areas to try to to knock down some of that ghosting. And in a lot of the, a lot of the cases, it was it was effective. But a lot of the time uh, we were just up against things that would, you know, there, there's times when the art isn't going to be a perfect choice for for anaglyph and um, particularly the struggles of just dealing with the red and green that just added to the, uh, the complexity. Well, I have to say as a, as a consumer, as someone who did not have to slog through all that work, um, I, I thought they were, I thought all of these things that we have discussed, Frank in the third dimension and all of your work on League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, as a consumer, uh, I, I found them you know, brilliant. They were amazing, uh, especially in, in the uh, League of, Ex of Extraordinary Gentlemen, because the concept worked so well with the storyline. Oh, we're going to a magic world. Well, put on your magic glasses. Um, and uh, I, I, it's fascinating to hear of the difficulties and the struggles. And I'm sure you might look at it and only see the things you'd like to correct. But from a, from a consumer point of view, from a 3D enthusiast point of view, you knock them out of the ballpark. That means a lot to me, and I know that would mean a lot to Christian as well. We really did work hard. You know, we're, we take we take this art form very seriously, and so we we're always looking for ways to improve the experience for the end user. And it, it's so good to hear that because that I, I felt like it was successful. No, don't get me wrong, but at the same time, yes, it's hard not to look at a piece of work like that and remember just how much. Uh, work and uh, fiddling and, you know, trying to find that perfect balance it was. In the, in the end, I think Christian even went further because he had another chance at it um, when it was in a collected edition that was released about a year later, and they gave him another chance to adjust pages. And now that he had finally seen it in print, he was able to actually make even more adjustments that were more satisfactory. So, you know, it's it's a constant anybody who does this and has to produce anything in anaglyph for print, you're always looking for ways to certainly get the best effect possible. And anybody who's ever done it will know it's very difficult. Uh, earlier in the podcast, um, make a reference to uh, 3D as a gimmick. But now as we're summing up, I think you used the right word, art form. I agree. Well, now, what do you think the biggest thing to, to get you to, to finally arrive at a point where you're satisfied is it your collaborator or is it the deadline if i put him on a spot joe <laughs> <laughs> i want that answer because i'm going to use it for my own life okay charles well wait yeah, really yeah yeah <laughs> that's a great question um the the deadline is obviously the deadline you know and and um like i said i have experience working in in the graphic arts industry for many many years so that just comes with the territory I think what it does come down to, though, is not 
uh, allowing yourself, it, it, if it's going to mean working longer hours and maybe even into the night, it's worthwhile because ultimately this is, you know, it's going to get printed once. And um, I, I did this a lot with the Frank book. There were moments when I realized oh, some of these images are pretty similar. I could probably just sort of fake this part here and no one's going to notice. But I ended up taking that extra time and separating that extra rock or taking that extra blade of grass just to make sure that every plate was as original as possible. And, and everybody, you know, the, the entire book was getting um, the, the distribution of quality that it deserved. So the, I guess the best answer is uh, it really does come down to uh, integrity honestly, and, and wanting to, yeah. to, to want to keep this art form alive. We're kind of aware of the fact that this is a niche uh, process. There's not a lot of people doing it, and there's not a lot of people who are very good at it. So uh, I feel like it is kind of incumbent on us to uh, keep, you know, celebrating Ray Zone's legacy uh, pushing it as far as we can. We have technology now that lets us create 3D comics at another, a completely new level. And so I feel like it's kind of our responsibility to, to stay true to that. I would just like to follow up. If someone experiences poorly done 3D, it turns them off forever. And then they're not open to, hey, there's a real, you should look at Frank in the third dimension. You want to see 3D. But they've had that bad experience. Yes. And, and that, that's, as we know, that's really common. Um, you know, a bad 3D experience is all it takes. You know, just one can do it. Um, after I completed the, the Frank in the Third Dimension book, I, my wife and I went up to Seattle and actually visited Jim and his wife. And uh, the first thing he said was, like, you know, we were going to dinner. Is I just got to tell you, man, you know, that was amazing. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know how you're doing it, but it, it's making me look at my own art in an entirely different light. I said, well, that's, you know, obviously music to my ears. It means I've succeeded. Um, and, and he was very clear with just basically saying, look, I'm, I, I don't, I was expecting cardboard cutouts, you know, and I even teased him. I said, you just thought it was going to be cutouts, didn't you? And he's like, yeah, I really did. And then it's like, and then I couldn't stop looking at it. So again, knowing that people are perceiving um, that extra boost in quality, it, it makes the hours worthwhile. It makes that extra effort worthwhile. Whatever project you got going on, I, I, I would love to uh, to reconvene. I'm sure I'll think of a bunch of questions after this, but I think we covered it pretty good. We're almost closing in an hour. And again, I want to thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure being here. I really enjoyed doing this. This was a lot of fun. Let's do it again. Thank you, Charles. Thank you so much, Charles. And I'll talk to you later, Joe. Not me, not me.